Welcome to Overexerted, a Lorcana podcast brought to you by Two Tired Dads. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Charles. And I'm Ben. And we're your hosts. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the previous week's news, rate some cards, and close with a friendly debate. But first, tell us about your week, Ben. All right. Uh, yeah, it was quite a tiring week, actually, but that's most weeks for a dad. Uh, what kind of added to the tiredness this weekend was my wife and two kids were actually sick all weekend. So I had very little time to do much other than taking care of everybody else. Yeah, that sounds rough. Uh, sick family is never good. Yeah. What about you? How was your week? My week was pretty good. We finally got some news. We had been in quite the drought lately so i uh, didn't know what we were going to talk about this week until very recently and uh also made a stop by my local game store oh did you get some more product i did actually i bought some dice just to you know support the store <laughs> of course and talk to him about the game he I, I walk in you know and he already knows why i'm there he says i got some bad news for you i haven't heard anything and i was like <laughs> No, 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 that, that's fine. And he's like, no, I don't think you understand. They haven't even got back to me about the organized play thing. And I said, no, no, don't worry about it. None of the stories have heard back. Like, you're not going to hear back till the end of June. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very interesting. I do think Ravensburger could do a little bit better on their communication with the local game stores because they clearly feel pretty in the dark. I agree. But yeah, it was really nice to stop by. Uh, he actually hadn't even heard about the lawsuit, so I filled him in on that. Yeah, the lawsuit was uh, quite a bit of rough news, but the good news is that we did get to see the rest of the Timon and Diago card, and we also got a Genie card revealed, so that kind of brightened up the week on a dreary lawsuit newsless week. That was amazing. We have been waiting for more Emerald cards, and this Genie definitely delivers. Oh, it's beautiful. I love it. Let's get the doom and gloom out of the way for everybody. Since our last episode, there has been a lawsuit filed against Ravensburger uh, by Upper Deck. They are alleging that Ryan Miller basically had worked for them first to create a game called Russia Vicor and prematurely left them to go work with Ravensburger and basically took the ideas to Ravensburger to make essentially the same game and turn it into Larkana. Yeah, that's uh, quite the claim there. So I'm kind of interested to see how the rest of this goes. Uh, I guess we'll find out in due time. Or we won't find out. I really think we won't find out. It'll end in a settlement that nobody ever hears about. I'm almost wondering if there won't even be a settlement. I don't even think it'll get that far. You're right. It might not. But we're not lawyers, and we really don't have the facts of this case, so we're not going to spend too long on it right now. But if you are interested in hearing a little bit more about it, we are going to have a little friendly debate at the end of the episode. That we will. I hope you brought your A game, because I brought my B game. Let's move on to the new cards. Why don't you tell us about these new cards we have today? Alright, so we got to see the rest of Iago, we were able to see the rest of Timon, and then Genie just fully revealed, looking great, and uh, yeah, like you said earlier, getting more Emerald cards was a breath of fresh air, because we have been waiting for Emerald cards forever. It was starting to feel like Emerald cards just didn't exist in this game. I think we had, what, 13 before these reveals? That sounds about right. Which is making it a little difficult to do much of anything just seeing 13 cards other than kind of try and guess what they might be about. When you say difficult to try to do anything with Emerald, are you saying you've actually been building some decks? Uh, I've actually been building some decks in my mind only. I haven't done anything online yet. I've been kind of having having a quick shower, getting some peace and quiet to myself because that is where most dads get peace and quiet to themselves is in the bathroom. And I find I do my best thinking in there, so I was thinking, well, when I actually finally play against Charles, hopefully, for my first game, 
I gotta figure out a way that I'm gonna have to be crafty to beat him. Okay, so just to be clear, you still have not played a game of Lurkana. I still have not played a game of Lurkana. That might have to be something that we might have to actually live stream or something. Just to be clear, this is the second episode of our Lorcana podcast, and you, our valiant co-host, have not played one game. <laughs> that is true, that is true. I like to have a uh, physical hand on it, but I am also willing to try out apps from time to time. I did play quite a bit of Pokemon when I was building decks on the app that they had at the time, but uh, still, no game under my belt. I will welcome any opponent in due time. But right now, I am not ready. In due time. Okay. Fair enough. Let's go over these five cards. Now, two, we pretty much all knew. Uh, but it is nice to have final confirmation on the lore values and the abilities. We weren't exactly sure how they would work. First one we're going to go over real quick is Timon Grub Rustler. He is a one ink inkable character. He is a one strength, two willpower he is a story-born ally, and his ability is Tastes Like Chicken. When you play this character, you may remove up to one damage from Chosen Character. Tell me, where is Timon for you on a scale of 1 to 5? Personally, I love Timon. I found that his voice acting in The Lion King was absolutely fabulous. I loved it from when I was a little kid, and it's kind of carried me through to love this card, but also, I have to be honest with myself, so... Overall, the one cost inkable is great. You know, it's it's low cost, and if you don't need to use it at the time, boom, just ink them. You're done. The damage removal when first played is also great, because if you have a slightly damaged character, you can take off one damage, kind of bring them back up to maybe close to where they started. The low strength and low willpower, however is understandable because he is only a one cost and one lore that's actually uh i guess not too bad for a one cost overall on a scale of one to five i've gave timon's art a 3.5 out of five and playability i gave him a three out of five i'm not saying that it's a terrible card but there are better cards out there for one cost what about you how do you feel about timon this is, uh, you know, I hate to roast cards, but I've got to put this guy at a 1 out of 5 on the playability scale. Oof. I mean, the thing is, when I look at a one-drop character, I want to play him on turn 1. And true, his ability is not going to do anything for you on turn 1. So instead of getting like the vanilla flounder 2-2 two, two for 1, you're getting a 1-2 for 1. And... Might that ability help later in the game to remove a damage? Sure. But it also, even during 3 or 4, might not help you. So again, you're still getting just a 1-2 for 1 instead of a 2-2. Two, two. So, I, you know, I hate to be so harsh, but he's a 1 out of 5 for me right now. Ooh, yeah. I could understand that. I, I do think there are better cards out there for removing damage. But getting a body on the field that can also gain you lore kind of brought it up a little for me. I kind of look at it later on if you're playing, you know, you're up to about four ink and you're looking at your hand and you've got a three cost and Timon. You could, you know, throw down the three cost, throw down Timon, heal whatever you have on the field, and then at least you got something out there. But, yeah, I could see it not being high up on the pay scale there. Yeah, I mean, his ability will surely come into, will work sometimes, but... It's not an ability that's going to fire every time. No, definitely and, not. And you didn't really get it for free. You paid a strength to get that ability, so I just have a hard time with him. True, true. Let's move on to number two. All we right. have Iago, Loudmouth Parrot. Tell me how you feel. So, Iago, Loudmouth Parrot. Also, what did you just call me? Did you call me a Loudmouth Parrot? Well, you are a Loudmouth. Ah, the parrot thing, I'm still, uh, we'll see. I don't just repeat what everybody else says. Determine. So, Iago is a three-cost inkable. He has low strength and mid-willpower, sitting at one strength and four willpower. His ability is You Got a Problem, 
When he exerts, chosen character gains reckless during their next turn, which means they are unable to quest and they must challenge if able. He has one lore, and he is an emerald car. Where I would put Iago, this is going to sound rough, even though your one out of five makes my three out of five on this artwork sound pretty, uh, pretty fluffy. You know what? I'm going to be a little rougher. I'm going to give him a, a 2.5 out of five. He's only mid for me. It's not terrible art. I just feel the art could slightly be better. It feels like it's lacking something to me. Um, when I think of Iago, I, I don't see this Iago per se. I do see kind of a more vibrant bird. I like Iago to stand out. Yes, he's a loudmouth, and his mouth is what makes him stand out. But also, he's just beautiful in the movies. And how can you not like Gilbert Gottfried as the voice? That's fair. For playability, I'm going to give him a 3.5, just because he gives the chosen character reckless when he exerts. However, most of the community has already figured out there is a way to get around the reckless situation. So if... All he's doing is bringing Reckless to the table at one lore for a three cost. There's better cards out there for cheaper. So I might even be being too generous with the 3.5. I'm going to bump that down as well to just the three. Okay, okay. So 2.5 for the art, three for playability. How do you feel about Iago? Well, I'm glad you bumped him down to a three because I wasn't going to keep letting you get away with these half points. Uh. <laughs> We we did it out of five instead of ten, so you'd have to make some tough choices here, and you're trying to cheat with your half points over here. <laughs> they do it in the movies all the time. I figured it was fair. I did forget to give Timon a flavor rating, and I feel bad after knocking him down for the one out of five on playability. It's what I think about most is playability. I love the artwork on Timon. He's got the grubs. He's mowing down. He's having a good time. There's a nice little bit of flavor text on there. I give this card a 3 out of 5. Fair enough. Um, But back to Iago. Again, I'm going to start with playability. It's what I care most about. I think this is a pretty good card in Emerald. I'm going to give this guy a 4 out of 5. Ooh. Um, Yes, you can get around Reckless by either singing a song or having an exert ability. But most characters don't have an exert ability. You're obviously not going to just use this on Elsa. So I think it's pretty good. He's got four willpower, so they could come into him. But it's probably going to take a couple turns to get rid of him. And the other characters that that Emerald has, you don't really want to challenge. You don't want to challenge Cruella. You don't want to challenge Cheshire Cat. I mean, you kind of need to because it's got two lore. But... You know, with that ability, it's never looking very attractive. Fair enough. Actually, you know what? With the constant being able to exert and give it reckless over and over and over again, yes, you could stop it the first time with an exert ability, and yes, you could stop it the first time with a song, but are you going to want to keep having to force yourself to exert or force yourself to find a song or some other way of stopping that possibly we don't know about yet just to stop this parrot from constantly giving you reckless or are you just going to try and take him out as quick as possible and that's going to distract you and your bodies from being able to quest and gain lore yeah i think he's a pretty good card i would try and debate you most times but this time i might actually agree with you so maybe you are a parrot after all oh no all right it's time we get into the meat and potatoes we've got Genie on the job. Ooh. Another Emerald card. Very excited. Six cost. Not inkable. With three strength and four willpower. Two lore. He's got evasive. So only characters with evasive can challenge him. And he's got this ability called disappear. When you play this character, you may return chosen character to their player's hand. I gotta say... I don't know. I've got mixed feelings. A six cost non inkable. That's tough. That's tough. Um, I'm going to give him a two out of five. 
A two out of five. Do I think he's unplayable? Not absolutely not. I think he's not really going to be a four of in any deck. You're not going to put four of these and get stuck on it early. You might put one or two. You know, it's a nice ability, but the the non inkable, you know, especially in the higher cost card, you're going to come to see is a big downfall. Very true. Very true. Now. Being that I am the Disney fan out of the two of us, and being that I am the one who looks at the art, I'm going to have to uh, be hard on you. What was your art rating for Iago? I don't remember. Iago, dang. I got, uh, you know, you know, this is, I, I disagree with you. I think this is a four out of five. This is exactly how I remember him in the movie. Um,. Granted, it's been a long time for me. I haven't recently watched it again yet. Um, this is exactly how I remember him. I like the background. It's not overly complicated. It looks almost like it's a, you know straight out of the movie. Okay. And then what about Genie's artwork? Genie is fire. I love the colors going on here. I love the little dude getting swirled up, plays straight to the ability that he has. Um, I'm going to go five out of five here. This is a great piece of art. Nice, nice. All right. So, where I come in with Genie, I actually find that, I'll start right away, uh, mid-strength and willpower with the three strength, four willpower there. The evasive is always nice. The evasive always adds a point or two for me when I'm trying to give them decent playability. However, like you said, the six cost, non-inkable, if you're already quite high in the inks and you've got better bodies out there than one that gets you too lore, it's going to be hard to justify the six cost and you might want to ink it at that time. You might want to play it. There's going to be times where you're going to want to ink higher cost cards and you're going to want to play higher cost cards and not being able to ink the card when you want to makes it a little tougher to justify adding it to the deck. It has to be very good. The evasive is great. The disappear is awesome because if one of your characters is injured, feel free to bounce it right back to your hand. For those of you who don't know, bouncing it means exactly what it says. When you play this character, you may return chosen character to their player's hand. So you're just picking that card back up, putting it back in your hand. You can do it to your opponent, or you can do it to yourself. It says chosen character to their player's hand. So you can use that as an advantage to yourself if you've got, let's say Iago has one health left. I'm not going to say you're going to want to use this ability on Iago per se, but let's say your Iago has one willpower left and you're thinking, oh, I really just want to get more reckless out of my opponent. So you bounce that Iago back to your hand just so you can play him back and have full willpower on him. Is that great? Yes, it is. However... I gave it, ah, you're going to crack me on this one. I was going to say 3.5 out of playability, but I'll just round down and say 3. I had him originally at 4, but I know that you're going to come down hard on me on those half ratings. So I'll go 3 for playability and 4 for art. Okay, okay. I think the art looks great. I love it. I think Genie looks fantastic in it i like the the green swirls around him which is kind of an interesting choice i understand that he's an emerald card however green smoke gives me the idea of villains but i'm also noticing when you look at iago he also has little green swirls behind him so it's kind of interesting that they're putting this touch of green in the pictures that is a good point. I didn't really, it didn't look like a villainous green to me, but I do get what you mean there. Green typically the color of poison. Mm -hmm. I definitely see what you're saying there. I, I will say the genie has a lot of great detail to him. I like the, the finger spin that he's doing there, and I like the way that the artist illustrated that. The palace guard being a little more cartoony than genie was kind of understandable because it's tiny and... That also is kind of how that works for images like this. I will say that I think it's going to be an even better looking card when it's foil. I have no doubt in my mind that this is going to be a beautiful foil card. Okay, okay. Is the palace guard tiny? 
or is Genie grown in size? Fair enough. It's a regular size palace guard, and Genie just got big because he can do that. That is true, yeah. It could just be a massive Genie and a very small palace guard. I believe it's Razul as well, but I could be incorrect on that. Way out of my comfort zone. I don't know any of the palace guard uh, names. He's like the head <laughs> palace guard. Okay. He's always okay. giving Aladdin a hard time. Now, we did want to continue this Rate Your Card segment, and so we're going to go over a couple of previously revealed cards. The first one I want to talk about is Mickey Brave Little Taylor. Oh, he would. He is an 8 cost, inkable, 5 strength, 5 willpower, 4 lore character with evasive. Tell me, what are your thoughts, Ben? <laughs> well, I'm ready to get a lot of backlash and hate from the community, but at the same time, maybe they will forgive me. I feel he's high cost for mid-range strength and willpower. Like I said before, the evasive kind of adds two points for me on playability. The 5-5, five, five, decent. Not great, just decent. But the 8 cost inkable seems so high, but at least it's inkable. I'd have no problem throwing a couple of these in my deck. Oh, look at this. I'm early on in the game. Let's throw down a Mickey as ink. I got, you know, 2 or 3 left in my deck I can pull from if I absolutely need to. 4 lore with evasive is just... That's kind of amazing, because you do get them out on the field, and they don't have something to stop your evasive... You're gaining four lore. You get two of them, you're gaining eight. You know, like, within two turns... Well, not within two turns, because you do have to wait for the ink to dry after playing them. However, play him on the first turn you're able to. Wait a turn so that the ink has fully dried. Play the second one. Quest mm -hmm. the first one, you've gained four. On your next turn, you gain an additional 8. You're at 12. You're already over half of where you need to be with two characters. I'm hoping by turn 8 you have 8 lore or more. So this could be a game finisher by turn 9 earlier if you use ramp. And uh, get as much ink as you possibly can out. So overall, yes high cost, mid-range strength and willpower. But high lore and evasive... I gave him playability of 4, but art, I gave him a 4.5. Is he the most beautiful card? No. Is he a beautiful card? Absolutely. Would I love to have one in my collection? Definitely. And when it's foil, like I said before with Genie, it's going to be absolutely popping. It's going to be the most beautiful card out there. How do you feel? About so wait, after that feedback, you went with a four on playability? <laughs> well, do I feel like it's more playable than Timon? Yes. Do I feel like it's more playable than Iago? Yes. Do I feel like it's more playable than Genie? Yes. So I had to give him a slightly higher score than all of them. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Mickey Brave Little Taylor, what do I think? I think he's good in a certain deck. He's good in a control type deck where you're going to get that late game. He's he's a closer on his own. You don't need a bunch of cards to close out if you can put this guy on the board. Eight costs is hard to get to. You know, you've got to think when you are playing control, card advantage is super important. So do you want to commit putting eight cards in your inkwell when you could probably get away with five or six and that's two or three more cards you have in your hand that's tough i really like this card he looks like a you know a big impressive character but i've got to put him at a three out of five and i'd lie if i said i wasn't between a two and a three at least as the game stands right now i just when i'm playing i don't want to get to ink i'm very happy to stop at five or six and that's been pretty effective for me I will say, you talk about mid-strength, mid-willpower, he's actually 
the biggest evasive character besides Simba. And he's the only character we have with four lore. So for those reasons, I do have to put him in a three. But he still dies to a single let it go. Or, you know, a, a single... What's the red removal? Dragonfire? Yeah. But he does still die to a single let it go or a single dragonfire. And there's probably some other removal we haven't seen yet. So it's tough. But yeah, I'm sticking with the three, point, or three not the two. Um, on the artwork, this guy is pretty, pretty sweet little artwork. I love the wooden scissors. The idea that he just cut out his outfit and made it up, it's pretty pretty cool. I do wish the colors were a little more vibrant in the background. It's kind of a washed out color, which is, I'm sure, what the artist was going for, but I tend to be more drawn to the vibrant colors. But I will point out there is a big hand shadow on the ground that he's facing off, and I don't know if everybody's really noticed that yet. So I think that's pretty sweet. I'm going to go four out of five. Ooh. Okay, okay. So after all that, we all thought that I was going to be the one that gave BLT Mickey, as everyone calls him, the lower score, but apparently it was you. I'm tough to impress, okay? That's that's fair. That is absolutely fair. But it is definitely a card that they had to release because it is Mickey Mouse, and he has to be the face, so... Oh, and he's an awesome card. Oh, yeah. I, I... mean, people are going to be very drawn to this card. Oh, 100%. I can understand why he is one of the first cards that they released, but I don't know. I, I just felt the way that he was being talked about for quite a while, that he was slightly overrated, and then, of course, I still, for some reason, gave him a decent score. I was very surprised by your four, because uh, when we initially talked about this card, you roasted him pretty hard. Um, I thought for sure you were coming in at a two or even a one. Oh, no, I have... Uh... I have a couple cards in mind that I have for twos and ones already. Okay, okay. I'll be interested to get to those. For me, a five's got to be auto-include any deck that's playing this color. And four, he's got to be playable in most decks playing that color. And I don't find him to be playable in that sense. You have to build a deck that makes sense for him. And that's why he's got to be a three out of five for me. In the right deck, I do think he can be very effective. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll accept that. Shall we move on to the last card? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and tell us what it is? All right, so the last card is a card that the community's talked about quite a bit, I believe. And that is the Develop Your Brain card. It is a Sapphire card. It is a one-cost inkable. And it has the text that says, look at the top two cards of your deck. Put one into your hand and the other on the bottom of your deck. So why don't you tell us what you think about this card? You know, I like this card. Uh, And I have mixed feelings because on one hand, it's a draw spell that... (laughs) I shouldn't say spell. That's, of course, a magic journey. It's a draw action uh, that gives you no card advantage, but it does give you some card quality i think in the early game this isn't a great card i do think in the early game you can't afford to lose that tempo with the one ink to play this action but in the late game when you do need to draw the right card i think it's very good to be able to filter through cards in your deck so i do like it it's a pretty easy include because if you don't need it it's inkable i'm gonna give this a four out of five all right Artwork-wise, love it. Sorcerer in the Stone, the big room of books. It looks so different than a lot of the other artwork that we have in the game. Um, For that uniqueness, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 5. Perfect. Alright, so I do have to actually agree with you that it being a one-cost inkable is great because, like you said, early game, you see it in your hand, ah, I'll just throw it into the inkwell. That's what I'm going to use it for. These cards have always been tough for me when it's come to other games where it says look at the top two, pick one, and put the other at the bottom of your deck. Because I always just feel like you're playing a card 
to draw a card, essentially. And let's say you pick up a card, and you're like, oh, this is the card I want. But then you pick up the second card, and you're like, this card is just as equally as good. Now you have to decide which one you were putting to the bottom of the deck, and possibly not even getting to see before the game's over again. So mm-hmm. it's it's made it tough for me, but I do understand that there is greatness in that. So... For playability, I gave it a 4.5, but I will go 4 because you don't like my .5s. And for artwork, this is where I'm going to say I'm saying 4.5. Because Sword in the Stone, absolutely one of my favorite movies. However, I love the area above the books. I love that they went with quite a few different colors for the books you kind of have a pale green some browns a dark green you've got some scrolls in there with like yellow and gold on the end of them this kind of sky room behind is all starry i like that and there's the blue swirls going around it which once this is foiled once again going to be an absolutely great looking card however because of the books a lot of them being brown it almost kind of washes together and that the only thing that's separating it is a couple lines showing that these are separate books. Do I love the artwork? Yes. It is probably, in my mind, one of the best artwork pieces out there that we have right now. Do I think that there may be better? Possibly. Off the top of my head, I can't remember something that I think's better. I mean, I right here off the top of my head, if I had to choose something that I think is slightly better than this i'm gonna go with the robin hood because the robin hood has just a bigger variety of colors however this is still one of my favorite pieces of art in the game will it be in my deck if i have a blue i'm probably gonna have to force myself to put it in and just get over my whole what's the point in having a card that makes it so you just draw a card just go ahead and draw the card instead you know I understand that, like you were saying earlier, it helps you get the cards that you need later on in the game, but what about the heart of the cards? <laughs> uh, we're not playing Yu-Gi-Oh! You can't trust in the heart of the cards. No, card quality is, you know, card filtering for card quality is good. Definitely. So. And um, I've, I've started kind of getting over that and learning it a bit more, and I'm getting wiser in my old age, as they say. So I would say, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with a 4 on playability, but 4.5 for art. All right, and that concludes our card ratings for this episode. As we alluded to earlier, we do have a little special part two for this episode where we're going to debate the lawsuit. Now, I do want to get some disclaimers out of the way up front. Neither of us are lawyers. Neither of us know basically any of the facts of this case. But we just want to have a little fun with it. I'm going to be arguing upper deck side of the case. And Ben is going to be representing Ravensburger and Ryan Miller. Boy. I will also say that I am not a lawyer and know very little about law. Well, especially American law being a Canadian. That is true. Your guys' crazy sideways laws. But I'm not really here to argue the minutiae of the law. I'm here to talk about what's right and what's wrong. And what Ryan Miller... And Ravensburger have done is just plain wrong. Upper Deck hired Ryan Miller to make a trading card game for them. He agreed to do so. He signed contracts saying he would do such. And he started development on a trading card game for them. At some point, for whatever reason that we don't know, he decided that he no longer wanted to make that trading card game from them. Because as it says in the filing here, he terminated the contract. They did not terminate with him. He terminated the contract prior to the game being done. Which left them having to find new game designers to finish this game for them. Definitely put some behind schedule. um, Where somebody, you know, it's not easy for somebody else to come in and just pick up where somebody left off. They have to go back and learn the ins and outs of the system that was created or they just have to start from scratch which is not what they wanted to do now there's no way 
you're going to sit here and tell me that the Lorcana rules and the Rush Vicar rules don't sound basically the same. Well, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast listening jury world that we are making here, I am here to tell you that without a doubt, Mr. Miller and Ravensburger did not maliciously copy Upper Deck's game. There may be some similarities, but I'm also here to give you the fact that there's a lot of similarities in a lot of trading card games. And that's just the facts. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of similarities in a lot of card games. But there's also a lot of unique things about each card game. And there's really nothing unique between these two games. The whole game loop, as it were, is similar. Each system is similar. Is it a little bit different, each system? Yes, I would say it's an iteration of Russia Vicar in this case. Lorcana is an iteration of all the rules that were provided for Russia Vicar. Okay, well, let's get to the basics, first of all. The comparison that they're making, they're saying that Russia Vicar and Lorcana are both trading card games that last approximately an hour and can be played one-on-one -on -one or with multiple players. However, Rush of Icar says multiple players per team, whereas Lorcana doesn't state that you're on a team. You're actually kind of all against each other when you're playing with multiple players. And uh, I think Magic the Gathering can also be played with multiple players or one-on-one -on -one and last approximately an hour. And I could be wrong, but Pokemon may do the same thing. Oh, hold on. This just in. I believe Yu-Gi-Oh! can also do the same thing. Are those the three major pillars of trading card games? That's so strange that all of them do the same thing. So, so should Rustra of Icar be getting sued by Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, or Yu-Gi-Oh! for making a game that can be played one-on-one -on -one or with multiple players and take approximately an hour? Let's not pretend that that's where the similarities end. That is just the beginning. Let's get into the root of the rules of these card games. Now, I mean, we all. Why don't you tell us how Lorcana is played? I feel like we already know, but give us give us your rules. Well, I mean, according to the documents that I've seen, um, Lorcana is played with sixty cards in a deck or more. No, no, no. Listen, we don't need the documents version of how to play Lorcana because we know the rules of Lorcana. Just just give us what is what does a game of Lorcana look like? A game of Lorcana, let's see. You draw your cards. Okay. You play one face down into your inkwell, which you use as a resource system. So you use the one resource that you have played, or multiple resources over the course of the game, to play a character or an item, or an action, or a song. And then you can either send your character on a quest to gain a victory point called Lore, or you can choose to challenge your opponent's characters if they have any on the field, or you can simply just leave them unexerted and unable to be uh, threatened. So... That's basically how a turn goes. Okay, so if you quest with your characters to gain the lore that you need to win the game, mm -hmm. that leaves them vulnerable to your opponent to um, be attacked, right? Oh, okay, yes, yeah. See, that's a pretty unique mechanic that, while I haven't played a lot of trading card games... Uh, is, is pretty unique. And interestingly, if we look at the rules for Russia Vicar, they have champions instead of characters, but that's just a different name for essentially the same thing. And 
these characters go on raids to collect gems, which you need to win the game. To go on a raid, they have to be exhausted, which then leaves them vulnerable to attack on the opponent's turn. Does that not sound familiar at all? That does sound familiar. And so you're telling me that they gain gems from going on a raid. Interesting. That's right. Interesting. Um, have you played many trading card games? Uh, I've played a number of trading card games. I've played Netrunner, Vampire, Game of Thrones, Legend of the Five Rings, Magic the Gathering, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Pokemon, am I forgetting any? I mean, those are for sure at least most of the trading card games I've played. It's interesting that you bring up Legend of the Five Rings. Do you remember um, how you'd win a game of Legend of the Five Rings? To be honest, I don't. I never really found anybody to play with after I bought that game. Well, I believe that one way of winning... Legend of the Five Rings, where you had uh, an honor victory, which you had to build your oh, own yes. honor score up. Yes. So that seems like a system where you're generating victory points. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that making the score go up or go down is particularly unique. Um, I also believe that Netrunner is another game with victory points. So... I would say that's not really a unique thing. And and how did you get keys and key forge? Yeah, you did have to... Uh, I forget the word for it, but yes, you did need to exert, essentially. Okay. And that exert, exertion there would, um, that would gain you victory points that you would essentially use to win the game? So I would like to return to my original point, which is... You might find in many games there is a similarity. So yes, Keyforge is choosing to fight or to reap, as it was in that game, to earn um, your Amber, um, which while a little bit different because you had to get at least six and then you had to wait till the start of your next turn to forge a key, but that's neither here nor there. That's one similarity between those games, but Keyforge also is not a deck-building game at all. You open a playable deck and are not allowed to modify it. And also in Keyforge, there is no resource system at all. You choose a house that you're going to play, which is basically a third of your deck, and you can only use cards of that house that are in play, and you can only play cards from your hand that are of that house. So while it may have a similarity in the character system, the overall game is actually not that similar at all. Okay, and the point that you were originally making is that when a character is exerted, or in the case of Rush of Icar, they are uh, exhausted, I believe you said, that they're vulnerable to attack. Yes. Or challenge. Um, now, when you send a character on a raid, when do you gain your victory points that you need? Do you gain them as soon as you send them out on a raid? Uh, no, you your character does need to survive until the next turn. Oh, okay. So then I would argue that the major difference there with uh, exerting and exhausting your character is that in Lorcana you immediately gain the lore, whereas in Rush of Ikor, you actually have to last until the next turn. Yeah, no, I agree. And I would again assert that I do feel that Lorcana is a refined version of the Rush of Icar game system. Okay, okay. And then um, exerting cards to actually have them be attacked, or I'm just going to say turning them sideways, or tapping might be simpler. Uh, tapping cards, where you have to turn them sideways, yeah. puts mm -hmm. them in a vulnerable position mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where they can then be attacked. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any other games where... When a card's in a vulnerable position when they're turned sideways? Again, I'm not going to get into every game that might have a similarity. I'd like you to point into any game that has as many similarities to Lorcana as Rush of Icar does. Uh, okay. Uh, Rush of Icar 
has abilities, correct? Uh, yes. Yes, there are abilities. Oh, okay. And one of these abilities is called elusive. Yes. So, many people could argue that elusive, where a character can only attack another character if they have the elusive ability, is very similar to evasive. Correct? That's right. So, I guess Upper Deck would like to argue that evasive is just a ripoff of elusive. Um, now, can elusive characters attack or challenge characters that don't have elusive? Yes, elusive characters can challenge non-elusive characters, yes. Just exactly like evasive. Exactly. And there seems to be another ability called flying that I've seen... I can't remember the, the trading card game off the top of my head, but I believe that a character that has flying can only be challenged by another character with flying. First of all, you're completely roasted because that combat system is completely different. You can't challenge a character in Magic. You attack, and a player chooses whether or not they want to defend. You, uh, true, true. A character with flying can only be blocked by a character with flying, or actually also reach for cards that can block flying creatures but don't attack as though they're flying. That's not really similar at all. I, I was just pointing out that only characters with the same ability are able to actually challenge, threaten, attack, whatever words you want to use, characters that have said same ability. Well, you're, you're comparing... Two abilities that do exactly the same thing to an ability in a different game that doesn't do exactly the same thing. Oh no, no, I understand that. I understand that. What I was what I was trying to get my point across is that um you could argue that the the two card games are exactly the same, or you could argue that they've each taken different aspects of different games and pulled certain pieces out of them and modified them. Are there similarities between the two? Yes, I will admit there are some similarities between the two, but like I stated earlier, there are similarities between multiple trading card games. I've been around for quite a while to notice that yeah, there but... has been hundreds of card games, and they come and go quite quickly. And Here's the problem with what you're asserting. Because I understand many card games have diff uh, similarities. The whole game as a whole is very similar to Rush of Ikor, and alone, I would still say that's not a huge problem. If Rush of Ikor come out, and another company comes along and says, I like some of those systems, we're going to iterate on that and make our own game, that's fine. But what's happened here is Ryan Miller was paid by Upper Deck to design them a game. He then went and took his ideas that were property of Upper Deck as part of the contract. And he brought them to Ravensburger before Russia Vicar was even out. So this is this is company secrets. You know, this is and now Lorcana is gonna come out before Russia Vicar even has a chance to release for various reasons. It's not fair to say that oh well they should have already come out with Russia Vicker if it was started first their lead designer left they had to find new people to pick up the pieces and finish putting the game together and now Ravensburger slapped a Disney IP on this so this game is going to be huge and if they did if Upper Deck didn't sue and Russia Vicker comes out a year down the road do you think that not 100% of the Lorcana community is going to go, wow, Upper Deck ripped off Lorcana and doesn't even have a good IP for it? Like, how stupid are they? That would be a, a pretty decent argument if that were to happen. I agree. That's exactly what would happen if Upper Deck didn't file this lawsuit. Their game is strikingly similar to Lorcana. And that's so not by some weird accident. The same des lead designer design both games so upper deck is really quick at filing paperwork then no they're not as soon as really they found that, out the rules they... they're really not that quick at all 
Because I was going to say, um, Disney Lorcana was a game that started production two years ago. Correct. And when did their patent get filed? Could you remind me? The Russia Vicar patent was filed in April. In April, patent. Okay, so Russia Vicar's patent was filed in April, and Lorcana's patent was filed. Hmm, interesting. It seems like it was before April. But a game that's been in production for over five years. I mean, I'm sure it was before years. April. Do you actually have, have a date on that, or are you just saying that? Ah, the official date? Regardless, because the date doesn't actually matter, I'll give you grant you that the, they probably patented it before Upper Deck. That doesn't invalidate the Upper Deck had been working on this longer. They had signed a contract with Ryan Miller. I mean, I don't think any of these particular facts are in dispute. Ryan Miller definitely worked for Upper Deck before leaving to work at Ravensburg. I don't think anybody's arguing that. Well, so, how long did Ryan Miller work there at uh, Upper Deck? Uh, about two years, I want to say. Let me double check the paperwork here. But I think a year and a half, two years. Interesting. Yeah, uh, he was hired in 2018, and he left in October of 2020. Interesting. So approximately two years. And Lorcana was originally started when? About three years ago, I believe they've said. We don't know for sure, but I believe they said they've worked on it for about three years. Interesting. Has Ryan Miller worked on any other trading card games? Uh, yeah, he's worked on a number. He's been in the industry for about 20 years, probably. Has Ryan Miller come up with any new game systems or game designs while in the industry? Probably. I don't know his uh, full resume here. Interesting. Okay. Let's. Where are you going with this? Well, I've heard from multiple sources and research multiple sources that Ryan Miller has worked on multiple games and he has come up with a few different systems. So is it not possible that he maybe had a hand in the Lorcana system but maybe didn't have as much of a hand as we'd like to think? I mean, there are two parties designing this game. It is not just Ryan Miller. So are you alleging that without Ryan Miller, they just happened to come up with the basically same rules that he had come up with for another game and then just happened to hire him after that fact? I wouldn't argue that, but I would say that That sounds like maybe... that's what you're trying to put out there right now, which sounds like a terrible <laughs> argument. I was trying to make time. I was trying to make time so I could look up things. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. The basic loop is, look, I'll point out some differences for you. In Lorcana, you play uh, a card into your inkwell from your hand. In Russia Vicar, you do it from the top of your deck. You know, there there are minor differences. I think in Russia Vicar, I saw there's only like a strength, not a strength and a willpower. In Russia Vicar, you only have 40 cards in a deck instead of 60. That doesn't actually affect gameplay at all. I don't really even consider that a big difference. I'm talking they about the gameplay They also only have four colors instead of six about... and three identical, identical cards. Again, well, three and a 40, four and a 60 kind of works out the same. Again, I don't think those are meaningful differences to how the game is played. The gameplay loop is I build up my resources. Starting in turn one, I get one. Turn two, I get two. I can play more and more powerful characters each turn. And then I have to make the choice of, do I want to use my characters towards my win condition? Or do I want to use my character towards slowing down my opponent from getting to their win condition? They both have the equivalent of action cards. They both have the equivalent of items. These games 
aren't just similar in one little aspect. Every aspect of these games is similar. And it's not just some weird coincidence. Was it done maliciously? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We're not going to know that. But is Upper Deck's game damaged by Lorcana coming to market first? Absolutely. Nobody is going to play this game if they release it. Because it plays basically the same as Lorcana, but doesn't have the Disney IP behind it. So there's really nothing unique about it. That's understandable. I mean, are we coming into question the integrity of Mr. Miller? I don't, like, again, I'm not saying it was done out of maliciousness, but he had a contract to design these guys a game so that they could have a unique game to release. Very true. They no longer have a unique game to release. There's no way Ravensburger was going to come up with this exact same system for Lorcana without Ryan Miller. I just don't imagine that being possible. I don't know contract law. We haven't seen these contracts. We don't know what it says, but I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that if you're going to hire a game designer to make a game for you, you're going to put in the contract that the ideas he comes up with for your game belong to you and not him. I'd say that that would be fair. I would also even say if Lorcana came out a couple years after Rush of Ikor, maybe it's not the end of the world. Because Ruckavishor already came out and everybody in the TCG community could see that, oh, this is a Lakana game, it's pretty similar to Rush Vicker, but they put the Disney IP on it, it's kind of a copy game, but maybe we want to play it. But if Upper Deck doesn't sue Lorcana right now, Lorcana comes out in August and September, everybody starts checking it out, playing it out, and then Rush Vicker comes out in 2024, they are going to get roasted so hard by the community for just copying Lurkana, putting uh, their own no-name IP on it, and trying to pass it off as a new trading card game. Fair. So, would you say that would... Upper Deck has never done anything that could be seen as malicious or... Hmm. Illegal? I'm not saying anything about that. I don't think that has anything to do with the merits of this case. Whether a person has done things wrong in the past doesn't mean that they can't be wronged. I'm not saying that they can't be wronged. I'm just saying that I believe there are some similarities, but I also believe there are quite a few differences. I mean, again, I'm going to reiterate my original argument, which is, look, the CEO came out and said it's a carbon copy of Lurkana, or Lurkana is a carbon copy of Rushavikar. Is that true? No, it's not true. What I do think happened is Ryan Midler took the ideas that he was working on with Russia Iker and said, how can I iterate these further? Like, I like these ideas that I have. But now I'm starting fresh on a whole new game, so I can iterate on them further. I can make things a little cleaner. Let's just give you the lore right now, instead of making you wait a turn, because that's something you have to remember. So we'll just give you the lore right now, that'll make it easier for people. But essentially it's the same system. He's just making iterations on the same game that he already designed for somebody else. Instead of the card coming from the top of the deck to your resource system, will make you have to make the interesting choice of choosing one of the cards out of your hand to put into your resource system. But at the end of the day, you're still putting cards face down in your resource system and spending them to play cards. You're still drawing one card a turn. You're still working up to this goal by making your characters vulnerable to being attacked. Sure, you get the lore up front instead of having to wait to see if they survive, but you're still essentially doing the same thing. 
Lorcana is definitely not a carbon copy of Russia Vicar, but I, I took knowledge that only he had of Russia Vicar and used that to iterate and make this new game Lorcana. And now I don't really see a world where Russia Vicar can even exist. I could understand that. The question more I have is would Russia Vicor ever existed? Because it did not seem like after five years the cards had gone anywhere. We have been told that it was going to come out possibly later this year or next year, I believe. But we still haven't seen a single card. We're essentially just going off of Upper Deck's word that they have so, made a card game. If If I'm a business and I pay you to design something for me... And for whatever reason, I decide that this product's not ready, it won't represent my brand properly at this time, or it's not the right time to bring this product to market. Does that mean that you should then have the right to basically go to another company and design the same thing? Oh, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that... Well, you said that... Rush Vicker might not have ever come out even. True. It may not have ever even come out. But what I am also trying to argue... Upper Deck had the advantage of finding out the rules. And then saying, our rules are the exact same. On a card game that was in development, possibly, that we don't know if those are actually the rules. They hadn't released anything saying these are the rules of our game. They hadn't released anything about anything really nobody even knew this was a game that was coming out other than possibly the team that worked on it am i saying that it's possible that mr miller knew what the rules were and went over to another company it is possible however is it possible that rush of Iker, when mr miller had left had completely different rules and in its next two years of a de- development while he was away they modified the rules that's also quite possible does he know that the rules have been modified after his his absence absolutely not now when he and Robinsberger released the rules how quick and easy would it be if you are Rushovic or to go in change your own rules to make them more similar to Lorcana, a game that's already had, had a patent before you, and then say, yeah, actually, these guys copied us, so we're actually going to sue them. In turn, could Robinsberger I mean, turn around? If that's if what they did you not want have... to allege, if that's the case you want to make, the upper deck just is actually making a frivolous lawsuit that actually has no standing in reality... Okay, you can make that argument. That would come out in court, though. That would come out in discovery, so it wouldn't be smart for them to do that. Because you can't change time. Like, there's going to be documents of what the rules were earlier in development that all would come out in court. So I really don't think that's a realistic possibility. That is true. That could happen. I mean... I'm I'm saying if that if that's your best argument Ben, I don't know. I think you I think you're floundering here. I'm saying it's I'm saying it's possible that maybe the the rules in the timeline could be forged. Okay. It okay. wouldn't be the first time that something's been forged by Upper Deck. With that, I feel like we've pretty much concluded our <laughs> debate here. I'm going to let the audience make their decision. Please tweet us at OverExertedCast. Let us know who made the better argument here. Of course, again, guys, just want to reiterate, we don't have any of the evidence. All we have is a filing by Upper Deck. We have what we know about Lorcana, the quick play rules. We don't have comprehensive rules for either of these games. We don't have the contracts. We're not lawyers. We know nothing here. But I would love to hear from the audience. Let us know who you think made a better argument here. 
And uh, I, w- I would also like to say we don't even have both sides of the story. We technically only have one side right now, and that's just from documents that have been filed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do also want to start a new segment next week called Community Questions. So please tweet us at OverexertedCast. Let us know what questions you have for us to answer on our next episode. And that concludes this episode of Overexerted. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and hanging out with us. We've gotten so much support over the last week since we launched our first episode. Thank you guys so much. We are now live on Apple Podcasts, live on Spotify, at Overexerted Cast on Twitter. Have a great week, everyone. Yeah, guys, have a good one. 